This sermon was preached by Caleb Bunch, head pastor and church planner of Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa, New York. Redeeming Grace was planted in 2015 and is seeking to reach central Nassau County with the gospel. You can find sermons from this series and many others at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. The large parable at the beginning of the chapter, and Jesus puts that forth as a paradigm by which to understand the rest of these parables. We've also studied the parables of the lamp and the parable of the measure in which we are commanded by Jesus to be careful how we hear his word. So now we come to the last two parables that are recorded from this portion of Jesus' preaching ministry. We come to these final two out of the five. These two short parables are often overlooked. And I I think personally in my own life, I've often just kind of clumped them together with the parable of the soils and kind of ignored them as individual passages and individual parables that have a deep meaning uh, that we should study carefully, intently, and individually. As we examine both of them this morning, I hope to show you how these two parables truly announce the kingdom of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. My goal this morning is to reveal that these two parables make audacious claims about who God is and what God does and about the kingdom and the power behind it. Not only so that you might know with your mind, but I'm hopeful today that God will use these two parables to grow joy in your life and to grow peace in your life and to grow hope in your life. My goal is that your heart might join with mine as I have studied this week and been edified this week to see more clearly that Christ is king of kings and how clearly these two parables show us that we must give all honor and glory and praise to him. So let's go before the Lord now and ask him once again corporately that he would bless this and that our goals would be his goals today. Father in heaven, you tell us in the scripture that Jesus is our good shepherd. We pray that today you would help me to speak his words, that he might be the true leader of this flock, that he would be the one shepherding us now. Lord, we pray that through the word that you would help us to know more about him and more of what he is like and more of what he expects from us. Father, we pray that you would help us to worship you fully in spirit and in truth. Let these two parables enlighten us uh, to see how you are sovereign and you are good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll start today in Mark chapter 4, verse 26. Uh, This is the parable known as the growing seed. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Parables, as we've seen over the last two sermons in this 
passage can be very challenging to understand. They can be very difficult. And oftentimes, people have varied understandings of what they mean because people have, over the course of years, over the course of the last 2,000 years, have had a difficult time at times understanding what Jesus is trying to say in these parables. But let me help you by giving you a very simple Bible study tool that will really help you to understand the parables better. This is something a lot of people have missed over the years. But it's a very simple rule, and that is a parable always is about one main point that Jesus is trying to make. He is always trying to get across one main meaning. And what most people want to do, whether they're individuals like us in this room, or they're theologians or scholars or great men of church history, oftentimes what people want to do and naturally try to do is they over-spiritualize these texts. And what they're doing by over-spiritualizing it is they're actually taking away from the main point. Let me explain what I mean by that by giving you an example from church history. One of the greatest examples that I know of this is the church father Origen. And let me just explain to you from his own words how he describes the Good Samaritan parable. So let me just remind you of the parable. Jesus is speaking and he's asked, you know, well, who is my neighbor? So he tells a story, this parable about a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on his way, he was beaten by robbers and left for dead. And then a Levite comes by. So, of course, he should be safe, right? This man will help him. But no, he crosses to the other side and leaves him there to die. And a priest comes by, and the same thing. He goes to the other side and walks right past him. But then a Samaritan comes. And a Samaritan, when entering the story, the people who are hearing this, the Jewish people, would look at that and say, Oh, a Samaritan, those are the worst of all people. They are our enemies. They are disgusting. We think, you know, there's there's Jews, and then there's Gentiles, and then there's dogs and dirt, and then there's Samaritans down here somewhere. That's about how they viewed them. And so the Samaritan, he says, a Samaritan comes by, and they're thinking, oh, well, if the Levite passed by and the priest passed by, then this Samaritan surely will spit on him and pass by. No, the Samaritan gets down, puts him on the donkey, takes him into town, pays for him to stay in the inn. And in that passage, Jesus is explaining what it means to be a neighbor. Right? That's the whole point of the message. But Origen over-spiritualized the text, and by over-spiritualizing it, he muddies the waters and confuses the meaning. Here's a a direct quote, of course, translated from Greek to English of what he's saying. He says, The man who was going down is Adam. Jerusalem is heaven. Jericho is the world. The robbers are hostile powers, the priest is the law, the Levite is the prophets, and the Samaritan himself is Christ. The wounds equal disobedience, the donkey is the Lord's body, the inn, which accepts all who enter, is the church, and the manager of the inn is the head of the church to whom its care has been entrusted. And the fact that the Samaritan promises he will return represents the return of Jesus Christ in his second coming. That is over-spiritualizing the text. First of all, this makes no sense. For example, why would Adam leave heaven and go to earth? That never occurs. We never see that happening. But do you see what I mean? By over-spiritualizing the parable, he's actually taking away from the main point that Jesus was trying to make. Now, the two parables, both of them that we're looking at today, oftentimes suffer, many of the interpretations suffer from this same problem. People try to over-spiritualize it, and they will say, well, you know, the mustard tree has 
branches where birds can go into the nest. So clearly that must mean something significant. And they'll begin to assign meaning to all these different aspects of the parable that are not the main point, and they're over-spiritualizing and making it mean something that Jesus did not intend for it to mean. So today what we're going to do is we're going to do our best to focus in on the main points of both of these parables. Now these two parables are interesting. In fact, the four parables that are at the end of this passage here, the last four, or the final four, which is what I'm calling this sermon, uh, these final four parables all find their meaning rooted in the first parable, the parable of the soils. They all connect, and they either expand on it or clarify it. So what we're going to see today is how these five parables found in Mark chapter 4 operate as a cohesive unit to display particular truths about how people are saved. <clears throat> Jesus preached five, five different parables in this sermon. Remember, he's on the boat, he's in Galilee, it's probably a wonderful sunny day outside, and he's in the boat preaching to a crowd, and he preaches five parables that are recorded for us. But he only explains to the disciples one of them. And in verse 13, he says, do you not understand this parable? Speaking about the parable of the soils. Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? How are you going to get the rest of these if you don't get this one? So he explains one, and by that shows them through this one, you should be able to understand the rest. So what we're going to do today is see how these final four parables are intricately connected to the first. So I'm going to recap for you the parable of the lamp and of the measure, just so we can see their connection. The parable of the lamp is there to highlight for us the obligation of true disciples to share the gospel. It is there to show us a light is not meant to be hidden. If God has given you the truth, don't put it under the bed. Don't hide that gospel message. It is there to show us we must proclaim the good news. In other words, there must be a sower. In the parable of the soils, you have somebody going out and, and casting out the seed that is going to be planted, and then it's going to, some of it, find good soil which will grow. But there must be a sower, and that's what the parable of the lamp shows us. It connects us in a very important way to show us that the sower is our responsibility. That is who we are to be. We are not only a soil, we are also one who is supposed to cast out that seed. The parable of the measure shows us that we have a responsibility about how we hear. Now, this is really key because you could come away from the parable of the soils and say, well, I'm one of those soils. I'm one of the four, but I have no responsibility about which kind I am because whatever soil I am, that's the one I was created to be. Therefore, if God wants me to be saved, I'll be saved, but it's not my responsibility. And here in the, in the parable of the measure, he says to us that we must be careful how we hear what we hear. You do have responsibility to respond to God properly. You have a responsibility to be good soil. That's how we are connecting these two. These parables, both of these first two, they represent, in the parable of the soils, it represents human responsibility. There is a part that we must play, we must be obedient in both evangelism and in responding to the gospel. <clears throat> Now, these two parables that we're going to consider today, the final two in the passage, these are going to highlight God's work in the process. So we first saw man's responsibility. Now, what is going to bolster that and uphold that is that we are going to see God's sovereignty, what is going on behind the curtain, behind the scenes. And these two things are not in opposition to one another. They actually correlate perfectly, and they 
They work together. Both of these things are fully true. So let us first examine the parable of the growing seed. Please follow along as I read once again, starting in Mark 4, 26. And he, Jesus, said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the sprouts and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the harvest or when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, there are some elements of this parable that you can easily see correlating back to the parable of the soils. It should be easy for us to identify some of the things that are going on here because it seems as though Jesus is paralleling them directly with the previous large parable that he's already explained. So when the sower goes out to sow the seed, he's sowing the word. He is sowing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we read earlier in the parable of the soils. We see that correlating here in this parable. But what we are going to see here is not so much about the sower and not so much about the soils, but about the power of what is going to happen, that the seed itself is powerful. The seed itself will grow. This parable is not really going to focus on the soils at all. It's all about the seed. When the sower goes out to sow the seed on the ground, he has an expectation. He, he knows, I'm going to throw this seed in the dirt And eventually that is going to result in a plant. He has an expectation that there is power in that little tiny seed that is going to grow. So he goes home and he goes to bed. He goes home and he sleeps. He has no ability one way or the other to force those plants to rise out of the dirt. Allow me to illustrate what's going on here with a short story. It was 2004. Harry Potter was reigning all across this country in people's uh, libraries and in people's uh, books. He was, Harry Potter mania was becoming very popular. Uh, David Blaine and Chris Angel were making stage magic famous again. The final Lord of the Rings film with Gandalf as one of the heroes had just been released about a month before this happened. And it was early 2004. I went to a mall in Kansas and at the mall, I saw something very unusual There was a young man there, clearly desperate for attention, dressed in a bright blue wizard's costume, complete with pointy blue hat and a wand. In Kansas, that's actually unusual, by the way. He was doing something that was drawing a lot of attention to him. He would stand in this very open area, and in this kind of atrium of the mall, there's a large glass elevator that went up about three floors. And he would stand kind of about 15 to 20 feet away from those elevators. And when somebody would go into them, he would go, to pretend as though the doors were closing. And he was forcing, you know, the doors are closing, but he's pretending as though it's his, him doing it. And then when the elevator would rise, he would, he would use his wand and his power and raise it with all of his might to the top floor. And then when it would come back down, he would do the same thing. And people were watching him as though he's insane. Maybe, maybe he was. What was he actually doing? What was he actually accomplishing? Nothing. It was not his power. He could dress however he wanted. He could use whatever stick that he wants or hat that he wants. He has no ability to affect that elevator by standing that far away and trying to manipulate it in some manner. Now imagine if the farmer were to try to do this. The seed goes on the ground. He goes outside. He stands beside it. And he begins trying the best he can to force it to come up. Guess what? It's still going to come up, but it's not because of him. 
It's not because he has done anything to force that seed to burst open and to begin to grow through the soil until it burst to the top, growing a root system and growing a fruit system. He is not responsible because the seed has power in and of itself. And that is what Jesus is trying to show us here. Why does a a physical seed grow? Scientists have studied this for a long time. Well, we know a lot more than we did back then. Maybe by now we could have figured it out. Maybe over the last 2,000 years we could develop something to help us know how to make it grow. Well, guess what? Scientists still don't know what makes a seed grow. They can study it. They can examine it. They have come a long way in describing what's happening in that process. But a scientist can't create life. They can't do it, whether it's plant, animal, or human. They can't do that. They don't know how this happens. Well, I know how it happens. In Genesis 1.11, God says, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, which is in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. God has created it this way. He has put life in these seeds that will reproduce life. Likewise, the gospel itself is powerful. Paul refers to it as the power of God unto salvation in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The seed itself is powerful not the sower. This parable is teaching us something very obvious. It should be very simple for us to see, but it is incredibly meaningful, incredibly deep for us. Do you see how simple and straightforwardly Jesus is proclaiming the power of God? This is God's power at work. Do you see that God is changing hearts? God is changing lives and he is responsible for this? So let me, let me ask this question. And you, you all know the Bible well enough to know this figure. He's famous. He's known very well. He was basically a terrorist against the church. He was arresting Christians. He was having them killed. And all of a sudden, one day, he's on his way to have more Christians arrested in a different town in Damascus. And God knocks him off of his horse through a vision of Jesus Christ. And Jesus proclaims to him, go into the city and listen to the man that I will send to you. And a man comes to him and shares the gospel. And guess what? This man who hated Christianity, who hated the church, who wanted to wipe it out and eliminate it, becomes the greatest missionary of the church in the entire history of the world. How does that happen? How does someone go so far from this side to the other side? How does that happen? It's because of the power of God. It wasn't because of the messenger, although the messenger played a specific part. God sent a missionary to him, but it was because of the power of God in his heart. If you're a Christian today, you can explain by describing what occurred to you when God saved you. You were a rebel. You were a skeptic. You were an enlightened individual, right? You knew better than to believe the Bible, this arcane book of ancient rules. You knew better than to love God's law. You didn't love God's son. You sought to justify yourself through self-righteous actions. But then something happened. What happened? What changed? And as much as you can describe the circumstances... What the Bible is teaching us is what change is there is power in the gospel that saves. This seed has power. That seed of the gospel grew. It may have been planted that same day that you heard it, you believed, or it might have been sitting there dormant for 30 years before God had it begin to grow. But that seed is what resulted in life. And that seed, the gospel, is the good news about Jesus So what is it that saves? It is the power of knowing that God sent his only begotten son to die for sinners like you and me and to rise for our justification on the third day. And he lives today to be our savior. That is true power. 
Paul speaks about this reality when he's writing to the Corinthian church. There were divisions among them. There were factions that were beginning to arise among them because some of them had been saved under the ministry of Paul. Some had been saved under the ministry of Apollos. And now they're trying to determine which one of them is better and which one of them are right because of who they were saved, uh, whose ministry they were saved under. And Paul writes to them to correct their thinking. And in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, he says, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? And then he answers his own question. Servants whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God made that seed grow. We had no ability to do that. That was God's work. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. In other words, who gets the credit here? Paul, do you get to write this down in your tally sheet? Hey, I've got another Christian. Or Apollos, do you get to mark down those numbers? Maybe you can share it and get half a point each. No, who gets the credit here? Who gets the glory here? God gets the glory because although they were casting out those seeds, yes, they did that and that was, that was a part of God's plan, but they never would have grown. They never would have saved anyone if Christ had not saved them. It is by the power of God that they were saved. All glory be to Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, simply refers to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. The author of our faith. Think about that for a moment. If I write a book, I write the words. Who is the author of your faith? It is Jesus. This truth is, it's mysterious. It's miraculous. And as we consider it, For our own lives, it is marvelous that God, through his power, saves to the uttermost. In order to clarify this parable, what I would like to do is I would like to to help us in this room, because I don't think this is new for anybody here, probably. Nobody's surprised by this. But what I'd like to do for a few minutes is to try to make sure that we don't veer off to the left or to the right. If we have this right understanding, it's easy to fall into one of these two following errors. And we want to make sure that we're careful not to do that. Because these are serious errors that have plagued the church throughout its history. And we want to make sure that neither one of these are things that we will fall into. Now the first one is to simply see the text and ignore the meaning. And focus your attention on something that is the exact opposite. Which is probably, this error is probably true of the majority of Christians In our country today, this is probably the way that most of them tend to err, okay? It is the error that says, it is my responsibility to make sure that somebody is saved. It is my responsibility. I've been at funerals in the past where people are relent, you know, they're sorry, they're relenting the fact that they didn't do more to save this individual, I wish I would have taken them to church with me more often. I wish I would have spoken to them more often. And that's good. And that should, that should cause us to desire to be more evangelistic uh, when we have those experiences. We should desire to tell everyone. But the result is not their fault. God will make the seed grow. It is God who causes that seed to grow. This person is feeling guilty about something they, even though in the people I'm referring to here, have been faithful to share the gospel. They have been faithful to live the gospel. They have spoken to these family members or these friends about the gospel. Yet those family members or friends have still rejected it. They feel guilty for something they can't accomplish. 
It is God who brings the increase. It is God who will make that seed grow. We will have this desire to have our message be received and our message uh, be responded to. We want that. Our desire in going to evangelize, our desire in going door to door in this neighborhood, our desire to living out the gospel in our workplaces, our desire is there because we want those people to know Jesus Christ. We have found the greatest treasure and we want to share that. And that is good. But the reality is they can't see it unless God brings the increase. So we must continue to share that truth. But at the same time, we can't make that change in their heart this is a little bit of a different picture but i think we can correlate them here when i was in high school i went to a a christian high school i had a pseudo christian high school i had a professor uh who was a pastor of a church who believed in what is called baptismal regeneration they believed that baptism is part of what saves you that Jesus' blood on the cross was not enough, that there must be something else you do, and that action that you do is to be baptized, and that is something that you do which saves you. It is a saving work. And he believed that very strongly. By God's grace, he no longer believes that. I spoke to him a year ago, and God has really worked in his theology. But in high school, I was not a very scholarly individual when it came to the Bible, but I knew I don't believe that. And I was a very uh, aggressive debater at this time, and I was very forceful in my discussions with him. I wanted to make sure that he knew this is wrong. You're a pastor. You should know this by now, Pastor McCoy. And so as I would, as I would speak to this um, individual during our class time when we're supposed to be studying Kansas history, which there's not that much, so it was, <laughs> we just uh, shifted conversation. For about a week, we, we discussed this fact that baptism doesn't save you. And, and I finally, at the, towards the end of our our argument, which was really actually three class, three full class periods. At the end, I said, if you could convince me of this, I will wear a bucket on my back for the rest of my life so that if I encounter somebody who gets saved, I can baptize them right there and make sure they're in the kingdom of heaven. Well, what we're talking about today is not the same exactly, but it's similar. People who say, well, I can force people into the kingdom i can manipulate them if i get the if i get the temperature in the room just right and if i get the emotions just right i can say anything and people will come up to the front and they will cry and they will weep and they will feel guilty and i can get them to pray any prayer it is my responsibility this is a great weight and burden i i know pastors who believe this it is devastating to them when somebody leaves the church they just about can't handle it they are broken because it is their responsibility to make sure but listen god brings the growth this is not an excuse to ignore our responsibility but god brings the growth we cannot bring a dead person to life go to the funeral home and try it don't try it but go to the funeral home next time you are there you see the corpse you do not have the ability to say to him hey come on there's good food get up come eat you can't do that in the same way you can't do that to a spiritually dead person no matter how much you try to manipulate the system no matter how much you try to raise that seed from the dirt you can't do it all you can do is scatter it out faithfully and god is the one who brings the increase that is really important. And this, this is an incredible truth for us because in seeing this, we need to recognize this is not bad news. This is good news. If it was our responsibility to force this change in an individual, then the church never would have made it out of the first century. 
it is God's work in someone. And God is always faithful, and God never fails. Christians can become lazy. They can be unfaithful. They can make mistakes. They can say the wrong words. When I share the gospel, I often am like stumbling over myself to say the right things. But thankfully, it doesn't depend on my perfect speech or Paul's perfect speech, as he says in Corinth. No, it doesn't depend on that. It depends on the work of Christ. There's immense power in the gospel. There is immense power in the act of salvation that God works in our hearts. To use some Old Testament imagery, it's like God is reaching into us and removing a heart of rebellion, a heart of stone, and replacing it with a heart of flesh. It is a surgical miracle on the spiritual level. God is doing something miraculous. There is immense power in salvation. Sometimes we hear testimonies of people and we get a glimpse of that because this person has broken all the rules that we find important. They have been an alcoholic or a drug addict or a murderer or a thief and God saves them and we look at them and say, wow, that is a miracle testimony. That is an incredible testimony. Did you hear what God has done in his life? He took him out of darkness and into light. Guess what? That is every testimony that God has brought us out of darkness and into light. He, dead, he made a dead person alive. God's salvation is a miracle every single time. And we should view every testimony of God's saving grace as that. It wasn't because they grew up in church and were a sort of good person. That person was just as rebellious and sinful. They just followed some of the rules you find important. God finds them all important. And they had broken them. Now this, I believe, what we're, we're, we're focusing on here, this is the main thrust of what Jesus is trying to get across in this parable. That God's power is at work in saving people. That it is the power of the gospel that saves. And the gospel is unstoppable. It cannot even be stopped by a rebel heart. I think that is the main point that we're supposed to get. And I think that is the main error that many people uh, tend to uh, make a mistake about. But there is a second error that I want to warn against. So instead of veering to this side, there's a, the opportunity for us to veer to the other side, which is the error that says, why bother do the sowing if God does the growing? Right? Why bother scattering the seed? It's God's responsibility. He's going to save his people. Why should I even bother? My guess is that this is the error that most of us in this room tend toward. And we, we can do this because as believers who, who know sound doctrine, who understand and, and adore the sovereignty of God, we can still use our sinful, lazy hearts to manipulate that doctrine into justifying our lack of evangelistic zeal. Now, I'm not saying that anyone in this room would ever verbalize this. I don't think anyone would agree with this verbally. Why should I bother? But I think that practically we often do. Well, I don't really think I'm going to talk to them about this. Maybe, maybe eventually I will get there. Uh, I just don't feel comfortable right now. We have a fear of man, whatever it might be. I think that we tend probably in this room to veer too far to this error in our own hearts. I know for myself personally, this is the error that is more common for me. <clears throat> We're naturally lazy people. We naturally seek to justify this. And in order to help us avoid this error, let me point out four biblical arguments against this error that will help us and remind us of the necessity to use our everyday lives, our every conversation, our every action, our every effort at work to proclaim the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, remember that these five parables operate as a unit. Remember that these five parables are cohesive and Jesus has already addressed this error. He has already pointed out this problem when he talked about the parable of the lamp. This is not something that we should even have to address because Jesus has already clearly said, if you have the light, don't hide it. 
It's important what you do in light. In other words, there must be a sower. You must sow. That is your responsibility. Secondly, and I think this is very important for us to understand, God has ordained the end, but he has also ordained the means. He has ordained not only that the seed will grow, but also how the seed will get there. God has ordained that we as believers get to play this incredibly privileged role of being involved in how he is operating to save others. There is a great joy when you are able to share the gospel with someone and you see that light turn on. I didn't do that. God did that work. I didn't turn on the light bulb. God did that in their heart. I see it. I get to be a part of the process, but I didn't do the work. However, I am doing this work because God has ordained me to do it. He has given each and every one of us this, uh, this command that we should tell others about the gospel. Now, consider that Paul, he knew this sovereignty of God better than anybody in the early church, apparently. I mean, the way he writes about it, he is so clear on the theology of how God is sovereign in salvation. Yet Paul, more than anybody that we can see in the New Testament, is zealous to share that word of God with everyone that he meets. God got all the credit for the salvation of those people in Corinth, right? Paul, what? God gets all the credit. Why are you still going? Why are you still telling? Why are you still preaching? Why are you still planting churches? Paul, tell us what you're doing. If God's going to save his people, then why share the gospel, Paul? He just tells us straightforwardly in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as an outsider of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Why do you do it, Paul? It is, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.23 I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Why do it? Because he knows the gospel. He knows what Christ has done for him. He knows that Christ has died in his behalf. And so, therefore, Paul is zealous. He sees the love of God and he responds with love for others. Does the gospel compel you? Does the gospel that you know compel you? to proclaim the truth about Jesus? Do you, do you speak about him? Do you take your opportunities at work to use these relationships with God has ordained to be in your life to share the truth about Jesus? You talk about the things you love. That's just the truth. We talk about what we love. Uh, we talk about the things we're excited about. We, we talk about the things that mean something deeply to us. We talk about those things. Matthew twelve thirty four. Jesus says, out of the depths of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're saved... This gospel message should affect everything you do. It should result in love and compassion for the lost. Now, here's the third uh, argument against this false thinking of why bother? <clears throat> to ignore the command of the spread of the gospel through evangelism, to uh, uh, ignore that command is a direct violation of the scripture. It's a command of the Bible. Now, we have, uh, my son is in the room, he's uh, not feeling well, so he's not downstairs with the kiddos. Sometimes, Ace, I say to you, sometimes I, I will say, 
Ace, I need you to do this. And you will innocently ask me, why? And I'll say, because I said so. Kids in the room, that is actually a valid argument from your parents. Because I said so. Why is it a valid argument? Because your parents want what's best for you. Your parents love you. Your parents know what is right. And they are seeking your best. And they are ultimately your authority. They are your your guardians. They are your God-given rulers at this stage in your life. So that is, by the way, kiddos, a valid argument. Not all of the arguments I'm making here might land with you today. They might not all click arguments against this, this feeling of why bother share the gospel. But this one should. If none of the others do, this one should. God says to do it. It is a command because God said so. So I encourage you to go back. If, if, if you want to study more thoroughly about evangelism and, and, and ministry and missions, uh, go back and listen to the four sermons that we did as a pre-launch series at when we were still back at North Shore. They're up on our website. And I would encourage you to refresh your mind in those truths because it is such an important thing. But today, I just want to show you one of those clear commands, the most known and remembered of these commands, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go make disciples. It's a command. The final of these four arguments will be uh, in response to um, this idea of why bother. uh, Is that we see we are to respond to God's sovereignty with action. Not inaction. The apostles clearly understood that God was sovereign. They got that. They, we see the writings of Peter. We see the writings of Paul. We see the way that the early church operated, though. And we see that it didn't result in them laying back and kicking up their feet and saying, don't worry about it. God's going to take care of it. He'll, he'll make sure that seed grows. No, they spent their lives dedicating them to the furtherance of the kingdom of God. They, even unto death, most of those disciples shared their faith continuously. So the parable of the growing seed teaches us about salvation. It teaches us that salvation is incredible. It teaches us that the power of God is incredible and amazing. And we get this distinct privilege to be involved in that process. But the power of God unto salvation comes only from the gospel. This little seed. And God uses that to save. So rejoice, brothers and sisters. Rejoice, celebrate, because this is good news. So let's now consider the last of the five parables, the parable of the mustard seed. Read with me once again, starting at verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In the dialogue between Socrates and Phaedrus, Phaedrus says these famous words, things are not always as they seem. The first appearance deceives many. This parable is about the kingdom, and not everything is as it seems. Jesus is asking this question as he begins. This is a rhetorical tool that's used in the ancient world. It's very common. He's not confused here. 
He knows what he's going to say. Jesus is not searching his mind for, maybe there's some picture that I could compare this to. No, Jesus already knows he's going to talk about a mustard seed, but he uses a rhetorical device in which he's saying, what could I possibly compare this to? In order to show you that the reality is far greater than the image he's about to use. The reality of the kingdom of God is far more immense and significant than this little picture he's about to use to describe it. So here he says, this mustard seed, it grows in the ground. It looks like nothing. It's small, it's insignificant, but it's a picture that represents something that's much greater than what I'm about to show you. The parable of the mustard seed connects us back to the parable of the soils in terms of growth, in terms of results. In the parable of the soils at the end, Jesus says that some of these seeds are going to grow and they're going to produce 30-fold or 60-fold or even 100-fold. They're going to advance the kingdom of God by orders of magnitude. It is going to be exponential growth from one harvest to the next. The parable of the mustard seed is going to point out the same thing, that the gospel is far greater than it appears and it's going to result in something massive, a massive growth. And so here we look at the mustard plant. Now, mustard plants, the seeds are very small. Jesus is making note of of all the things you would plant in your garden. These are the smallest of the seeds. Yet the plant grows to be the largest one. It's it's inauspicious. It's surprising. You would never think this little seed would grow into that huge plant that could even be a place where birds can build their nests in it and find shade in it. On Friday, I went to the zoo in Manhattan, in the Central Park Zoo with my family, just kind of as, as a date day to, uh, to spend with, with my kids. Dri- riding around in the subways and the trains with, with kiddos is challenging. You all know this. But it was fun. It was, we had a lot of fun. We went, to the, we went to the Central Park Zoo, and it was cold, and it started raining, so we went into one of those little rooms where they've got these big exhibits. They're beautiful, by the way. And there was a tank of fish in this one area, which was open on the top. I could have actually put my hand over the rail and into the tank. And I'm looking at these fish. They're about this big around. And that the whole tank, I'm wondering why those are the only fish there. And I look down at the corner and it says piranhas. <laughs> That's why they're the only ones there. And on, on the plaque it says, the bite of a piranha is stronger than the bite of a great white shark. Now, if I were to put those two animals, those two great beasts of nature, next to each other, I never would have guessed this little tiny fish has a bite stronger, more powerful than a great white shark. I never would have guessed. This little seed has a surprising thing inside of it. This, this little piranha has a big bite. This little seed has a massive plant that is getting ready to grow out of it. You would never expect In this parable, what Jesus is showing us is that the love of God is relentless. That the love of God is going to continue to go forth in saving individuals. He's showing us, by showing the disciples, once again, that his sheep will hear his voice and they will follow him. Consider for a moment this reality. You are here in this room as a believer. If you are a Christian, you are here because 12 men followed Jesus around for about two and a half to three years. If you're in this room... And you're a Christian is because on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached and 3,000 people got saved. If you're a Christian, it's because Paul turned from violent opposition of the church to being the greatest missionary in history. You are here as a Christian because there are martyrs who died proclaiming the name of Jesus, starting with Stephen, even down to this day. And if you are a Christian, you are here because of the countless men and women 
between the, the ascension of Jesus and now that have carried the torch of the truth of Jesus Christ from generation to generation, from age to age. If you're here and you're a Christian, you're here because probably you could trace your salvation back to one of the great preachers, one of the great pastors or evangelists like George Whitfield or John Wesley or Jonathan Edwards or Charles Spurgeon. You could probably trace back to one of these people. And most clearly, if you're a Christian in this room today, you are because somebody told you personally about Jesus Christ. You are here because that gospel message was handed off, as it were, to you. Now, everything I just said is true. And by glancing at this very, very simple timeline of church history, what we are doing is we're looking at the plant. We're just seeing the mustard plant. We're just seeing... The top, right? We're just seeing, and we can most clearly see what's right around us, what's most near to us. We're just looking at the plant. We're just looking at the leaves. But if we back down all the way to the roots of this mustard plant, what we are going to see is the power of God. We are going to see that the reason this kingdom is going to continue to grow and going to continue to reach out throughout the ages is because God's power is in it. It is God who is doing the work. God is unstoppable. From generation to generation. The, the church is unstoppable because God is building it. Jesus says in Matthew <clears throat> chapter 16 verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now why is this important to us today? We can see why it's important to the apostles. I mean in the early church they were the only ones right. There's just a small group. There's 120 people upstairs in the upper room. There's about 500 believers in Galilee. They're the only ones and, and when, when they die out what's left? Do they have a guarantee that this is going to continue forward? We see why that's important to them. We need to be reminded, apostles, yes, of course, that this kingdom is going to go beyond you. It's going to continue growing because of the power of God. But why is it important to you? It's important to you because look around. It doesn't appear that the kingdom of God is winning, right? It doesn't appear to us that the kingdom of God is growing. In fact, in America, it appears quite the opposite sometimes. In, in the world today, we, as we look around, we see terrorism we see political instability we see uncertainty we see the ubiquity of pornography in a culture that not only condones it but it exalts it and even even proclaims it as art we see the atrocity of human abortion we see gender confusion and delusion we see racial discrimination hatred violence greed sin 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 we look around that's what we see it's everywhere. And it doesn't appear to us, if we're looking in the wrong places, it doesn't appear to us that God's kingdom is winning. God's kingdom is growing. God's kingdom has power. If we focus on the wrong things, we are going to begin to wring our hands and be concerned and be sorrowful and be, be, be completely worried because we're looking at the weeds instead of the mustard plant here. God is telling us here in this parable that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. There is power in that little seed. And as he said before, by giving this question, what shall I compare it to? This reality is much greater than just a little seed becoming a plant. It is this little news, this little good gospel of Jesus Christ is going to change the entire world. It's going to change the entire future. Now, in that song, The Church is One Foundation, I was actually looking up hymns recently, and I, I looked up that song. And I didn't realize there are about ten different verses we don't ever sing anymore. That They've just kind of been lost to modern history. And I found this one 
verse that I think perfectly describes what I'm, what I'm saying here from this parable. It says, The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish. He is with her to the end. In other words, he's saying, we're never going to stop because the dear Lord is defending the church. He is not only the foundation, but the defender. And it continues saying, though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale against both foe and traitor, he ever shall prevail. The church will prevail because he will prevail over them. This mustard seed, it seems harmless. It seems worthless. It seems powerless. It seems useless. The, the people who were opposing Christianity early on, Gamaliel, remember Gamaliel just says, well, if this really is from God, then it's just going to continue to grow and we can't stop it. But if this is, is just a, a normal thing that we're expecting, the, the same kind of false messiahs that we've seen, then it'll last a generation then die out. Why didn't it die out? It didn't die out because of the power of God. The kingdom of God is winning and it is going forth from one heart to another. So let's go forth rejoicing in that fact that God is the power that makes the church grow. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, if you're here today, you, you might have had this seed thrown, planted in your heart many, many times. Perhaps you're here today and you've heard the gospel over and over and over, but you don't believe. Today, I want to inform you that Jesus Christ loves sinners. He died for sinners. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to die for sinners. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I want you to know Jesus died for sinners just like you and me and that he rose in power on the third day and he's still alive, reigning to be at your savior. If you want to know more about that, don't leave without talking to me or anybody that you saw up here on stage today. Uh, we'll be here after the service. Uh, we want you to know Jesus Christ and we want you to know him in a saving way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are amazed at your power. We are amazed at your wisdom. We are amazed that you ordain the means and the ends. As we come to these parables today, Father, I pray that, that we would not walk out of this room today and forget them. We would not forget the truths that you are trying to tell us through them. We praise you, Lord, for being sovereign over all salvation. Please help us to balance this truth that we might not veer off to the left or to the right, but that we might be faithful to proclaim, but also also faithful to trust in you to do the work. We thank you for the picture of the mustard plant and the seed that grows into this great plant. We thank you for the gospel that has grown into the church universal. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to grow that kingdom and that by the time we die, we will see that plant grow a little bit more. Uh, but knowing that it is not our ability that makes it grow farther, Lord, that even after we die and our, and our efforts have ended, Lord, you are still growing that kingdom. We thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.